And we're live. Welcome to Don't Be Coy. I'm your host, Uncle Lou. And today I have the honor, the pleasure, and the utmost appreciation with me to have Jonah Gilmore. Jonah, how are you doing this evening, sir? Hey, I am good this evening. I am rested and I have a little energy, so I'm good. I'm here. That's good. That's good. How was your week this past week? Uh, this past week was somewhat tiring, honestly. Um, I traveled back home to New Orleans for a wedding mm-hmm. and something told me to take a red eye flight, which I would never do again. <laughs> um, so they kind of like started my week off. Um, so it was like a little bit tiring, but I overall I had fun Yeah, um, attending the events that I did. So, so far, I mean, it was good for the most part. Well, that's good, man. Well, for the people at home, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah. So I am Jonah Gilmore. I am a news anchor and reporter at KETV Newswatch 7 in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, originally from New Orleans, born and raised in the 504. Um, and yeah, attended undergrad in New Orleans at a small HBCU, Dillard University, Went on to obtain my master's degree at another HBCU, Texas Southern in Houston, Texas. And from there, just jump started my career in television news. And it's been a roller coaster, um, a, <laughs> a really fun roller coaster, but it's <laughs> one I wouldn't want to get off of. Well, that sounds good, man. I want to hear a little bit more about this roller coaster that you've been on. Especially since, you know, as you mentioned, you have like a a multifaceted um, identity in the sense that, you know, you're from New Orleans, you went to a small HBCU, went to another HBCU for graduate school, and you decided to go into an industry where you have to essentially represent the voice of the people and um, distribute the news. So I'm a little bit curious about what that was like. trying to find your voice and find that representation um, within um, the news industry. Yeah, so first, like, being a roller coaster, I mean, you know, within the industry or any job career, um, you have your ups and downs, right? Mm -hmm. So the roller coaster for me is no two days are the same in news. You, You look at local media, you look at national and international news headlines, and every day is something different, right? So for me, that roller coaster was just going up and down, doing different things every day, trying to find my beat, you know, and mm. trying to find my purpose in the industry. So that's when I say it's like a roller coaster. But with all of that, it's still something that I enjoy. That's why I say I don't want to get off of it, you know. It's like because no two days are the same, I get to meet new people every day or I get to tell a different story. And I feel like I get to have a different impact. So it's always something fresh and something new for me. Um, jumping into the industry, um, it was kind of difficult for me because I, like you said, I am from New Orleans. So everyone knows people in New Orleans talk differently, right? We have an accent and everyone love it when we say baby. That's like the thing you like, say baby, say baby. And you have that that accent or that dialect from New Orleans and you think it's cool, right? Yeah. But then 
going to college and studying journalism and having to take uh, voice and diction classes and public speaking classes, I quickly realized like, oh, this doesn't fly. Like, <laughs> you know, like I can't have this accent while working in TV. Um, and even after undergrad, it was a struggle getting into the business. Um, applying for jobs after undergrad or before I graduated, you know, you, you're so happy to finally be like, oh, okay, I graduated, I got my degree, I'm gonna get into the workforce. But for me, it was a struggle because I struggled with New Orleans accent. Um, the rule of thumb was typically in television news, they want you to have a Midwestern accent, which is supposed to be the standard. Um, and that's what a lot of people look for. So for me, I was just lost. I mean, I had my degree from Dillard and I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Because every job I applied for from December to May basically told me no. Um, and some were transparent on why they uh, denied me the job. Others didn't tell me anything. And the ones that were transparent will say, hey, you know, your writing is good. You know, you're a good storyteller, but you have an accent and viewers won't be able to understand you. So that was the thing. And even with that, um, I didn't, you know, take it as deny or anything. You know, it's always the lead, not deny. So I just, you know, got a job in television news behind the scenes um, in New Orleans at WWL-TV. And I thank those people for everything that they've given me over the years. Um, but I got a job behind the scenes as a camera operator and just used my time there to hone in on my voice. So what I did, instead of like beating myself up about it, I was like, okay, I have an entry into the business. Now it's time to, you know, seize the opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I would work with reporters on my off days um, and just come in, you know, when I'm off the clock, get with them, um, go out on stories with them and, you know, have them critique my voice, you know, and have them, you know, tell me like, what am I saying wrong or, it's my pronunciation, my diction, like all of that stuff. And my mentor, um, who I met there, his name is Antoine Harris. He was an anchor and he took me under his wings. He um, basically gave me the in and out on everything. He was like, hey, this is what you need to do. I um, mean, if you can't, you know, get rid of your ass accent, this is how you mask it. And that became a thing for me is masking my accent to get my foot in the door on air. Um, mm. Eventually, it worked. <laughs> it got me my first on-air job. And even then, I didn't let up on, you know, working on my accent. I knew that I wanted to go further and I wanted to go higher. So I just kept going with it until, you know, I got to where I am now. Yeah, man, that sounds really great, especially as you're talking about your tenacity around wanting to get into the new in news industry and, you know, not necessarily taking what you can get, but looking at your first opportunity as just that, an opportunity and t using that to say like, hey, I might not necessarily be at where I feel like I want to be, but I have an opportunity to learn from those and gain mentorship from those who are doing what I want to do and I can learn from them skills. And so what it what it sounds like to me, finding community and finding that representation meant to finding that kind of mentorship. Is that correct? Yeah, it's that is correct. And actually, so my mentor, Antoine Harris, he's a black man. Mm. Um, and growing up in New Orleans, that's not something you saw too often on TV, people that look like you, right? You saw the news anchors on TV, and we have amazing news anchors in New Orleans. But it was rare that you saw someone that looked like you. Um, 
I recall growing up, for the most part, there was only one person in New Orleans who looked like me on TV, and that was Norman Robertson, who's a veteran award-winning anchor um, who's now retired. He worked at the uh, NBC affiliate, WDSU. But it's like, okay, I'm in this industry now, right? I'm struggling to find my voice, if you will. But hey, here's a guy that looked like me, you know, that wants to help, you know? And it's like, you can go throughout college, right? And you can get all the learning you can get. But for the most part, we know that practical learning is made on the job. So through internships or through like a real job, you know, you have. Mm -hmm. So it was like, find that that person, which was Antoine, and grasp onto him and, and have him work with you. And he did. And he would like always like liberal, like this is what it is. Like, this is what you're going to do. This is what you, this is how you dress. This is what you do on your off days. This is what you need to practice on. So mentorship, yes. that And I truly believe that was very instrumental in me getting to the next point. So yeah, finding that, that community within the news industry, but also finding that community that I felt comfortable with. Yeah. If you will. Because you can find a community, right? But you can have a community and you don't feel comfortable within that community. Yeah. If, if that makes sense. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think whenever um, you finding, that's the whole purpose of finding your voice, right? Like to be in a community means that your voice is uplifted so that you feel heard or that you feel that you can be more outspoken. And, you know, the more people that you have that um, fit into not necessarily that mold, but let you feel more comfortable, the more outspoken you will be. So I totally totally understand that i'm yeah and that comfort and that uh that level of comfortableness also came with something right because it's like you can find people within the business but i didn't have too many men in the business who understood what I, what I was going through who had a background like i did and came from where i came from you know so luckily he was that person he like i tell everybody me i am from New Orleans, but I'm from the projects of New Orleans. I was born in the St. Bernard Project. I was raised in the Magnolia Project. I grew up uh, in the Ninth Ward. So he understood that. Mm. He understood my background and understood my struggles. And instead of just like beating me up about it, because you can have a community and their own thing goes like pick at, like nitpick at what you're doing wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But he understood everything. So he was like, okay, I get this. This is what we need to work on here. You need to do this differently because I see you're doing this. So it's like finding the right person within that community to actually push you. Yeah. So now that you've had that voice be sculpted and now that you're actually in the, the industry yourself, as you were mentioning beforehand, you know, you're an anchor and a reporter. What do you want that voice to represent? Oh, man, that that is such a good question. And it's such a weighty question, right? We look at <laughs> today's times, right? Where there's so much going on in the world, whether it be right now with COVID-19 and the pandemic, or whether it be police brutality, whether it be African-American men being perceived in a negative way. Uh, or even for me personally, I represent the LGBTQ community. So it's like, I wear all of these hats. And for me, I want my voice to represent all of that, right? Mm -hmm. So I know what it's like to be a black man. I know what it's like to be a gay man, you know, and one is no more than the other. So for me, I want that voice to reflect 
everything that I represent, but also everything that is right. You know what I'm saying? Mm. It's like you can say, oh, because I'm I'm this race that my voice should reflect this. But we know that people do different things, right? And it's not always right. Yeah. So with having this voice and this platform, I want to represent my communities, but in the right, most respected way. And I feel like I do a good job at that. Um, working in news, I have the opportunity to put out stories that are meaningful, put out stories that are impactful. And it's always finding those good black stories in those communities because far too often, you know, we see the negatives, right? Yeah. Um, you, you see the shootings, you see the, the crime, you see the gang-affiliated stuff. But not often you see the positive things that black people are doing in communities on TV. And one of the things... Um, I did in my last market um, and I tasked myself with doing was always finding that really good black story. And it's not just to say that black stories are more important. It's just that in the industry that's dominated by other races, we don't see too many positive stories about our people on TV. And that's one of the things I wanted to change um, because it's a narrative that you create when you don't cover these stories. Right. Yeah. So if you're only going into the black communities when someone was shot or a police are doing a raid or there's a drug bust or something like that, then that's all people are going to see on TV. So it's my duty to find those stories that are, you know, hey, let's highlight the 100 black men. Right. And show how they are walking the streets of this, quote unquote, black um, crime written community. And showcase how they're going knocking on doors. They're talking to young men. They're being the mentors to these people. They're pulling young men out of their house and letting them know that, that there's something else out there in the world. So that was always my, 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 my mission, my mission in my last market to find those stories and tell those stories because they are meaningful and they do have a huge impact unlike anybody would ever know. Because unless you walk in those shoes, you wouldn't understand. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. So let me ask you this. Like, I know you mentioned that, like, you you did that in your last market, which, um, you know, I, if I believe correctly, was Baton Rouge. Now that yeah. you're in um, Omaha, is that um, that trying to find those same type of stories? Do you have the same accessibility um, or as in, like, is the community as large to have a population of stories or is it more challenging to find stories like that? No, it's, it's still my mission. And um, one of the good things about being a journalist, right, um, people don't know how it works. So just to break it down, we get to work every day, right? And we are having editorial meetings in the morning. So we have an editorial meeting where we all come into the meeting and we pitch stories, ideas, story ideas, right? So people say, okay, I saw this going on. Like there was a car chase and this many people were injured and police did this, police did that. We all have to pitch a story. But for me, when I'm looking for stories, I look for stories that are positive stories. Because mm-hmm. far too often you hear, and you may have heard this too, people say, oh, I don't watch the news because the news is all bad. And I hear that way too often, even from my own family members. Mm-hmm. So with my mission and my goal to tell meaningful stories about the black community, I still have that mindset. Because even, in, even though I'm in Omaha, right? And I'm fresh here. I've only been here a month, 
So I don't know much about the African-American community or the makeup of the community, you know, so I don't know about the population. But my mission stands true. My first weekend here, I covered a story about the African-American Museum, Mm. right? So they had a display going on of HBCUs. And the day before I went there, they got a grant to kind of enhance the museum. I wanted to tell that story because we're in Omaha. Nebraska don't have HBCUs. Yeah. So if you have black kids who are in my market who don't go or have the resources to go to this museum, then how would they know about all of the amazing universities we have? Yeah. That's and if we don't tell those stories, who will? Yeah. That's really interesting, man. I wouldn't have imagined that Omaha, Nebraska would have an HBCU museum. What What inspired that? So it's not an HBCU museum. It's actually a, a African American or Black History Museum, if you will. Okay. And every three months, they change the um, the exhibits. So every three months, they change the exhibits. And we were we were in January. We were going into Black History Month. And when I talked to the CEO of the museum, he told me that this was his first time doing the HBCU exhibit. And he just wanted to do it to expose younger black people to the universities that are out there. Mm. Because here in Nebraska, right, like I didn't even know about the other universities that were here. Only thing I knew about was the University of Nebraska Cornhuskers, which is in Lincoln, which is about 45 minutes away. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't know they had a university called Creighton University, and I didn't know they had other small community colleges. So here, if these kids don't go to this museum, or they're not looking for HBCUs online, they don't see this stuff, you know, they're not exposed to it, they don't know. Yeah. And with him doing that, you can do it, right? So he can have this exhibit at the museum, but if it's not out to the masses, then who's seeing it? Yeah. So by us going into it, you know, and highlighting it, we kind of exposed it. And for me, it was also a sense of pride because I am a two-time HBCU graduate. Right. And my both my alma maters were on display. So I was like overjoyed to share the good news of HBCUs because obviously HBCUs are just as great as any other university in this country or in this world, if not better. Mm. I agree with you on that one, man. You know, as I mean a, you're you're HBCU grad too. Come on, you know, bro. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. So I am I'm, I'm curious about that a little bit because you talked about um uh mentorship and you talked about you've talked about hbcus quite a bit actually and i think one of the things that's really um beautiful about that is you have this kind of uh synchronous experience of growth where while not only as you're growing in your career and playing in all of these different roles you've also had the opportunity to be a professor at hbcu as well and have that full (laughs) circle experience so i'm curious around when it comes to that kind of representation and as you as a professor, how did you instill that into the classroom? And like, what did that kind of look like in that, in that experience that you had there? Right. So, yeah. So I talk about HBCUs a lot and just to quickly say this, um, when I was in high school, I'm from New Orleans, as I mentioned. Um, so there are HBCUs in New Orleans. There are several. We have Dillon University, which is the first HBCU in the state of Louisiana. We also have Xavier University. We have Southern University at New Orleans. So we have multiple HBCUs in the city. And when I got ready to go to college, I only applied to HBCUs in the country. <laughs> like I didn't apply to any other school. Yeah. I applied to Dillard, 
Xavier, Southern University of New Orleans, I applied to Cheney State in Pennsylvania, Clark Atlanta, Alcorn, and I was like, okay, I'm done. So <laughs> I think part of HBCUs, right? So yeah. HBCUs have a, a very special place in my heart. So I went to grad school, and part of the reasons of me going to grad school is because I wanted to teach, right? Remember I said earlier, like coming out of college, I struggled mm. getting into it for business. And I knew that when I got back to Baton Rouge, if an opportunity presented itself, I would have liked to work at Southern University, which is an HBCU in Louisiana, in Baton Rouge. And the reason being, one, I love HBCUs, but two, I know that coming from Louisiana is somewhat difficult to get into the business because I walked in those shoes. I knew what it was like coming from New Orleans and struggling with my accent. And I knew that somewhere there was gonna be a child who had the same struggle. And with me over time, kind of developing a way to master my accent and be successful in the business, I wanted to give that back to someone. And when I got to Southern, show sure enough, they had multiple students who were from New Orleans, multiple students who were from other places in Louisiana. And even though they are from other places within Louisiana, all over the state, our accents are different. Like New Orleans, um, accent is different from Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge accent is different from Lafayette. Lafayette accent is different from Shreveport. But none of them are considered the standard to be in the news industry, right? So my whole thing was I had the mentorship, I had the guidance, and I had the support. And I wanted to give that back. But I wanted to give that back to kids that look like me. Because I know coming from an HBCU far too often, we don't have the resources as some of the PWIs, like, mm-hmm. right? So I worked in Baton Rouge, correct? And working at Southern, but working at the station, it was eye-opening because at the station that I worked at, most of our younger employees who worked behind the scenes were LSU students. Mm. And they had those jobs and they also had resources at their school. Yeah. So LSU, the school of manship, which is their journalism school, they do a newscast like daily where they have the resources to do all of this. Yeah. But also they're doing a newscast daily and then leaving school and going work at a professional news station where yeah. they're able to get experience and say, oh, I worked at a news station already and I can put this on my resume versus students at Southern who didn't have a newscast. They had equipment, but it didn't have anyone to actually teach them how to do a newscast or teach them how to do stories. So they were already at a disadvantage. And (laughs) it was shocking for me even because I came from Dillard and at Dillard, we did newscast. Like, that's what we did because that's how you hone those skills and that's how you, you, you know, that's what college is all about. You go to college to major in something to get the skills that you need to go into the workforce and be successful. Yeah. And it was shocking to me um, that they didn't have a newscast. So that was even more of a reason to be there. You know what I'm saying? Like, I felt like these kids were already at a disadvantage and you have resources, but it's janky resources. So I need to step in and actually help you. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, it was really good. Um, I have students now who are working at the station now. Yeah. And prior to me going there, I guess 
I wouldn't say it was be, it was because of me, but it was because of me because they didn't have anyone who worked in the business at Southern to kind of give them the resources. Say, hey, okay, look, we have this camera operator position. You can get this position, and once you're in the door, you can use your off time or your downtime to shadow me or shadow other reporters and start building up your demo reel, right? Start working on your reel so when you graduate, you can start applying for jobs. They didn't have that prior to that. So it was meaningful to me and it was impactful, but it was also a full circle moment because I had been there. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. And it, and I think it, it even sounds like more of a full circle moment because you had that opportunity to, you know, have how you started in the new news industry, right? Like you started as a cameraman, you've been a producer, you've done all these different roles. So to be able to start a, a newscast or start that type of program at that school, I'm pretty sure, you know, you had to leverage all of the different skill sets that you had previously. Well, I, I, yeah, I had to leverage all of the skill sets, but I didn't start a newscast there. I won't take credit for that. I didn't do that. <laughs> okay. What I did do was teach them how to properly do packages. So in the news industry, packages are our typical storage you see air. Okay. And prior to me getting there, um, from what the students told me, they didn't know how to do them, right? So again, they had the equipment, they had the cameras, the microphones, the editing software, but they weren't active doing packages. Um, they would do little things like go to like Pretty Wednesday, right? Which is like the yard or, or whatever, gathering on the yard at Southern every Wednesday where people dress up and like the Greeks are strolling in. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's just chilling and enjoying the campus life. But they would do like little stuff like that where we would look at it as entertainment news, right? Yeah. So they were like, oh, I'm on the yard. It's pretty Wednesday. You know, tell me how it's going out here, blah, blah, blah. But some of the students actually wanted to go into news. And with news, it's different. Right? Mm-hmm. Because you can't be all bubbly and I'm on the yard, you know, and I be all here at the scene when you're on a crime scene. Mm-hmm. So you have to like switch it up, right? So they didn't have that skill set. So they weren't knowledgeable of how doing uh, of how doing the package or how to put together a package, um, the writing and um and which is the foundation of everything that we do. The writing is number one and people see us on TV and don't notice like you have to know how to write and it's the foundations you have to know subject verb agreement you have to know how to properly structure a sentence it has to make sense you're not just getting on TV and talk so just going through the basics of telling them all that they were like oh really and Mm -hmm. it was just like mind-boggling because it's like some of my students were seniors and some were juniors but they didn't know how to write a package and I'm like this is something I learned in my sophomore year of college. Like, how do y'all not know this? And not trying to beat up on the program or anything like that. Right. It's just that things with the news industry evolve over time, as with anything, right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't have anyone that had worked in the industry during today's time. Mm-hmm. So, like, I know they had one professor who worked there. She was, like, in the business in, like, the 70s. The 70s and the 2020s are totally different. So yeah. um, editing software is different. Camera is, cameras are different. Um, even the way we deliver news is different, meaning everything is now 
more digital driven than anything. Mm. So for me going in, I just knew that once they told me that they weren't capable of doing the packages, then I was like, okay, we really gonna hone in on this. Like we're gonna drill it in there, you know? So like, I would just like drill it into them, um, bring stuff that I, like I would literally do a story on a Tuesday and go to class Wednesday morning, be like, okay, this is a story, like, let's break this apart, let's figure out how I put it together, like, developing this package, like, all of the stuff that you need to do. And I told you that, and for the final, they had to present a demo reel. So, for people that don't know, a demo reel is how these people apply for jobs. So, yeah, you have your standard resume, but a demo reel is basically, basically, a video format submission, right? You have a compilation of stand-ups, which is you on camera, and then you have like maybe three to four packages, which are like actual news stories. Mm-hmm. So once I taught them the foundation of how to do it, they were doing it often because at the end of the semester, they had to have a full reel. Right. Which three stories on there. So they went from saying they don't know how to do something to producing a full demo reel. Yeah. Is that something that like you notice amongst a lot of um, not necessarily HBCUs, but like underrepresented groups um, like within industry? Like I know, for example, just within research or even in other spaces that I've been a part of that um, it seems that where there is underrepresentation, the resources used by those underrepresented groups are always for some strange reason either decades or multiple decades behind and so it there's a a type of tenacity that um underrepresented groups have to go about and learn and there's this kind of um talented tenth kind of um theory that goes with it where only a small portion of of the population goes and becomes successful but eventually has to come back and support the the rest of the majority to create um, that gap, that's that disparity gap that's existed. I mean, somewhat, yes. Um, because even for me going to Dillard, um, looking at other universities, we didn't have the best equipment either, or we didn't have the resources. But we made do with what we had. Mm-hmm. And... We already know when it comes to our universities, HBCUs, we know how the resources are, we know how funding is, and we know that whatever obstacles we face, we have to do, we have to do, we have to grind because we have to make it. Like, failure is not an option. Right. I don't know what other schools are like when it comes to like PWIs because I've never been in those environments. But Mm -hmm. I know for me, it's a survival thing, right? Because we already know that we have a disadvantage. With our universities, we know why our HBCUs were started. So, just going in there, like with that mindset of, okay, this could be the situation, but then getting there and seeing, oh, this is the situation, then it, it, it sparked something in me to want to do better because I've been there, and it shouldn't be like that. Right. You know? Like you're paying all of this money for school to get the best education you can get at what we say are some of the best universities in the country. And then you walk into a lack of resources. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because the school don't want to do, it's just that the school can't. So 
it's just having a mindset of of, of that e- that eagerness, that want to succeed. You know, they're fighting you to say, okay, I'm gonna get this done. And me being a professional now, um, I have the resources and I have the connections to make things happen. And I know that it's my job to make it happen because if we don't, who will? Yeah. No, I think that that's really beautiful. And I really like your um, your passion that you have towards um, addressing those type of disparities and being that representation. So like, what does that look like for you now? I know, um, like you were just saying earlier, you're, you've only been in um, Omaha for about a month now. And, you know, you've already taken that big step to presenting that story around what the, the African-American Museum was doing with that exhibit. You've been a, a professor before. Um, what are some other things that you do or you're thinking about doing to to help the future um, journalists or individuals that are interested in the news industry? Well, I, I, I plan to do a lot, but let me just say you you hit you hit it there. Representation does matter, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's crazy how in 2022 still somewhere some child is looking at TV and don't see themselves. Mm. We're still fighting for that representation. So it, it it's very much prevalent now more than ever that representation matters in all aspects of life, not just in my career, in everybody's career. Because as young kids growing up, we looked to, me personally, I looked at TV, right? Once I knew what I wanted to do, I looked at TV to, you know, get the news and I want to do that and I'm excited, but there's no one that looks like me. And while that was a bad thing, it was also a good thing because I'm saying, oh, well, since there is no one who looks like me, then I'm going to be the person that kids look at and see in themselves. Yeah. So it's just like having that mindset of wanting to have people that look like you and to take up space and show some black kids somewhere that you can do it. Because far too often, I mean, growing up, for me, growing up in projects, it's like people already see you um, in a bad light, right? Mm-hmm. People label you and don't think highly of you. And it's like, you're, you're proving a point. But for me, I feel like you have to prove a point to people, but you also have to prove a point to yourself. Yeah. Right? Because if I'm growing up and I don't see nobody that look like me, then I'm going to prove a point to myself and say, okay, I'm gonna do it. I can do it. Even if there is no one of color there, I'm gonna make it. So now being in Omaha, um, one of the things I did when I first got here, right? Cause like I said, the news industry is changing. Everything is so much digital. I made sure to have a heavy social media presence. Mm. So like, instead of like just coming here, I made like this over the top post on Facebook about being in Omaha. Um, <laughs> and I don't know, um, just to say this, at my station, I am the only black anchor we have. Oh, wow. Um, black male anchor. We have black women, but I'm the only black male anchor we have. And actually, um, I'm the only black male reporter too, because we don't have one. We have a black meteorologist. We have two other black anchors, but it's four of us or five. Five of us, get that correct, it's five of us, but I'm the only black male anchor. So I knew that if I wanted to do what I did in that Rouge, I had to find a way to do it. And because I was new here, 
I don't have the resources just yet. I knew that social media would be my friend, right? Mm-hmm. And people think social media is a bad thing. You can use it for good. Right. You don't just have to get on Twitter and just tweet whatever on your mind. You can actually put out some, some great content. Um, so I made this over-the-top post on Facebook, um, Instagram, and Twitter announcing that I was coming to Omaha. And I posted like a picture and I made it clear on like what kind of person I was and what kind of stories I covered. Yeah. So people can see that and say, oh, so he covered this kind of stuff. So if I see him or when he's here, I can email him these story ideas of things that's going on in Omaha that don't usually get covered. Hmm. So that was my way of like introducing Omaha to me, but also putting it out there that I am going to be in this community. I'm going to be a part of this community. And I'm going to tell the stories of the underrepresented communities. And even like something that shocked me, um, because too often some stations don't like to do stuff like this because they may think they'll get pushed back or it's controversial. Mm -hmm. But like I said, we have five black people here, right? And when I got here, I've only been here for a month. They were like, okay, we have another black anchor here. We gonna shoot a promo. And I'm like, what? We're like, yeah, we're going to shoot a promo and talk about us being black and how it's our job to tell the stories of the, of the underrepresented communities. And I was like, what? Mm. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. Like, we're in the bus. <laughs> <laughs> right? But it's, it, it's something that I've always done and something I was surprised to see, but also something that's really needed. Yeah. Because we're talking about, you know, our voice and our platform and and representing these and you know being the face of these underrepresented communities but here you had a station that was like okay we are inclusive and we have to tell the stories of these underrepresented communities so we're going to let people know this is what we're doing Mm. and i was shocked i think that there's a there's a lot there's a little bit there that i kind of want to talk about um that let's go for it that um we might be missing there. So when you moved to Omaha, Nebraska, I know we talked about this previously that that particular agency or um, um, station is owned by the same parent company as the organization that you were familiar with and you liked. Is that something as far as the culture of that organization? Like, I, I think that that's yes. A, yeah. Yes. So I work for an amazing company, right? And even when I told my friends, because um, I, I changed companies, um, I told my friends where I was going, where I was going to work, and they all said the same thing. It's like, oh wow, like you're gonna work for that company. That's an amazing company. But this was also a company that owned a station in New Orleans where I said, remember I said there was a guy named Norman Robertson who looked like me on TV. This is the same company that had Norman Robertson on air when I was growing up in the nineties. Yeah. So it's very. It's a very well-ran company, a company that I I praise. Yeah. And coming here to Omaha and just seeing how they operate um, has been amazing. Um, and we talked about this, you know, prior to this 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 recording. But before I even got here, right, I had a conversation in a phone interview with my boss, and he was telling me how he wanted me to be here. In fact, he was excited for me because he loved my personality. He loved what I represent. And then something happened that doesn't happen often. 
within news. I had an interview with the general manager of the station and we talked and I was thinking the whole time, I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like, why would the GM like want to have a conversation? Like I've never interviewed places where the GM actually interviewed me. Mm-hmm. So, because they have a lot going on. So we talked and he told me, he was like, you know, I watch your stuff too. And he's like, I love your attitude. And he was like, I think you'll fit right in with what we have going on. So I said, well, what do y'all have going on? He was like, well, we are a powerhouse station. He was like, we're always, we're always being innovative and we're always putting out good content and we leave the market. Um, he was like, but we created this environment where everyone can come in, be themselves, and do what they love and represent the communities that they serve. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And this stuck with me. Um, so we were talking and I was like, yeah, I would love that. He asked me, he was like, well, what kind of stories do you like to cover? And I told him I was, I'm a transparent person. I was like, well, I love to cover good community stories, highlight people that are doing well in their communities and the stories that don't get told. And he was like, okay, what are stories that don't get told? And I told him, you know, far too often the stories that don't get told are the positive stories in other underrepresented black and brown communities. And he was like, okay, cool. He's like, we can do that. We have that. We have room for people to do that. And that's something that I really fell in love with and I think kind of pushed me to come here even more because yeah. this is a company and a station that is creating spaces for you to do what you love when other places kind of shut it down, fearing that they would get backlash or fearing that viewers would turn away from the content that they're producing. Yeah. And instead of running from that, they're like, no, we're going to do it. And it was just so refreshing to hear that because I know coming from where I came from, too often we did write stories on universities and stuff like that. And I, I'm like, I've said, you probably heard of a lot of times now I went to HBCU, but where I come from in Baton Rouge, when there were things going on with universities and we had to, it got to a point where we had to actually stand up to management and tell them, no, we're not doing this anymore. Mm. So in Baton Rouge, you have Southern University, but you have LSU. We will cover everything LSU, but only go to Southern when that was an issue. Mm. And it was like, why are we doing this? And when you would ask them about covering something at Southern, the excuse will always be, we don't have the resources. And it's like, Southern is not that far from LSU. So we can go to LSU to do this. We can go to Southern to do this. And it took for our, at the time, our digital manager, this girl, she, uh, this girl who also went to HBCUs, um, she stood up and was like, no, we have to do Southern stories. Like, we have to be fair. And we can't just be one-sided because we have to represent the community we serve. And Baton Rouge is a predominantly Black community. Yeah. And we were only doing LSU things. And it was just disheartening. But coming from that and coming here where you have management saying, no, we want those stories. We want you to tell those stories of this community was just like, wow. Like, you're actually allowing us to take up space. And even like going further in the conversation with the GM, um, he was talking about like, you know, just the culture of the workplace and 
like I said, this is an amazing company, right? Yeah. And he was like, one thing we, we, we don't do is we don't beat up on people or we don't think that people have ill intentions. He was like, even if things go wrong, we have this culture and it's saying in our newsroom um, is assume positive intent. And I was like, okay, I get it. Like, but, you know, talk more about it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, let's say you get here and you're working here, right? He's talking to me. He's like, let's say Jonah working here, right? And you do amazing work all the time. And one day you just can't get your story together. He's like, we're not going to beat up on you for not having a story. He's like, we're going to assume positive intent and assume that you came in, putting your best foot forward, wanted to do the best job that you can do. And things just didn't work out in your favor. And I was like, what? <laughs> it's like, I want to like take off like my professional head, be like, you, you for real, guys? And, and um, it was just, it was, it was so good to hear that because far too often in this business, if a story falls through and you miss slot, then you're beat up about it, right? Uh-huh. Because it's a domino effect. So if I don't get my story, then that means the story is not running the newscast, which means there's more time to fill for the producers. So everyone has to scramble to to find something mm-hmm. to fill that time that I couldn't get. But here, even like now working here, it's amazing to see like how they live up to that newsroom mentality of assume positive intent and everyone lives by it. So when things go wrong, no one is beating you up. Everyone is like all hands on deck, like to make everything work. Yeah. And it's just like, wow, this company and this station is living up to the hype. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been amazing. It's been an amazing month. I bet it has, man. I mean, like just thinking about all that awareness that you have in yourself, right. From when Mm -hmm. listening to the start of your journey and identify, okay, this is this is my goal. This is where I want to go into and um, the space that I want to represent to address my why and be that representation and find that voice for the community, the underrepresented communities. And in finding that journey, you found a community through your mentorship and able to grow and develop your own skills and pass that down and share the different experiences that you've had. So I think that, you know, it's a it's a beautiful thing, especially to know that once you realize what your why is, it's easier to find like the kind of company and organization that you want to work for, no matter what industry that you're in, that align with that why. Because if you have that um, that mutual kind of respect towards that, uh, it, you can do nothing but good. That's a good thing you say, finding the why. And I think... Anybody who goes into the news industry needs to find that why, mm. right? So sometimes you'll you'll have people get into the business and they simply want to be on TV. And if you get into the business without without knowing your why and just wanting to be on TV, then you could either be successful um, because this happened, or you can fall right, you know, because you really don't have a purpose. You just want to be on TV. Yeah. And for me, I've been fortunate in an unfortunate situation to find my why early. So, and I don't even think I shared this story with you and we've been friends for years, but my why, my why for becoming a journalist is a tragedy to triumph story. So 
back in 1997, I was on the news as a child with my family because my brother was killed. Mm. Um, my brothers were walking home from a party and they both were shot in New Orleans. One of my brothers, um, he survived and the other, he died on the scene. Um, one bullet went through his back and exited his heart. Um, and at the time, he was only 17 years old. Oh. Um, Sorry to hear that, man. So for me, being on TV at a young age, right? First off, I was so consumed with what the news crew was doing, setting up cameras, lights, getting the microphone to interview my dad and everything. But also in that moment, I saw my dad be his most vulnerable self. I saw a father who was weak, a father who was hurting, because both his sons were shot. One of his sons was no longer here, and his oldest son, his junior, was laid up in hospital. Mm -hmm. And I knew what that moment felt like growing up, right? Because I've been there. And I knew that getting the platform that I got I knew that I wanted to make a difference for other people because even after the interview that my dad did, we had a reporter that checked on him throughout the process. And you don't get that often. Far too often you have reporters that go to stories and they're just going to get a story. Mm -hmm. Like you have a family that's mourning and you're throwing a camera in their face, expecting them to talk. And after that, you won't probably ever talk to or see them again. So for me, my why was taking my platform and helping families, right? Mm. My why was to help families. That's initially why I wanted to get into the business. And finding those stories, you know, of the underrepresented communities, they kind of intertwined, right? So there are three families in Baton Rouge and three names that I speak highly of. And that's Trey Tyson, Joe Ross, and Devontae London. And the London family, the Ross family, and the Tyson family have become my family. Mm. Now, what's interesting about those families, Trey, Joe, and Devontae, I never met because they all lost their lives. So I covered the stories of those three young black men. Um, and these are the stories that are most impactful for me and stories that I would never forget. So the first one that I did was Devontae London. I did in 2019. Devontae was killed. Um, his body was pushed out of the park in broad daylight. The next one I did was Trey. Trey was a 13-year-old boy who was bullied and took his own life. Mm. And then the last one I did was Joa, who was... Killed on New Year's Eve and his body left in his mom's house, right? Wow. So get the stories of, you know, of course I get the assignment of you want to cover cover this death, right? But for me, because I know my why, going into those stories and those situations, I knew that I had to have compassion. I had to be human. I had to take off my reporter hat. Um, because I know what it's like to have a camera shoved in your face and expecting you to talk at the most vulnerable moment. A lot of times, 
we're at the scene and talking to families literally minutes after they lost the loved one. Mm-hmm. So going into the situations, I knew that I had to be Jonah. I couldn't just be a reporter, right? And it's crazy how just me being myself and having a, a sense of understanding and my why helped me better tell those stories. Because even, you know, with death, far too often you see a story about somebody being killed, right? A black man. And the first thing they do is do what? I don't know. Bring up their crime history. Yeah. Or bring up what they've done in their past. And for me, like I said, my thing is changing the narrative, right? And even with all of these families, I never once wanted to know, have they been in jail? Or let me look up their rap sheet. No, this is a family who's grieving, who lost a child. So we're going to change the narrative. Tell me about your loved one. What was special about them? What is the one good thing you remember about them? What What are you going to miss about them? You know, tell me a funny time. Just changing the narrative because I knew my why. And I felt like, uh, well, I do feel like this is my purpose. Um, Like from when I, my brother was killed when I was what, six years old. Um, from six to now 31, I just knew that this is what I wanted to do, what my why was, and what kind of impact I could have. Yeah. So knowing your why is a very important thing that you need going into this industry or any industry at all, because that that could help or harm you. Yeah, I, I completely agree, man. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to to speak with me and especially with being that vulnerable. I've really enjoyed the time, especially um, learning more about like your why and like how that's shown up and like how you've been able to um, um, elevate and grow your own voice um, through having that why as your platform. So this has been really great, man. Thank you. I, I I really enjoy talking um about it. Um and it's and my why is not something I talk about often because like I said, it's a kind of tragedy to triumph thing. And the reason I say tragedy to triumph because you know I lost a brother, but I gained a career um through this all. So I mean it's 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 refreshing to talk about it and it always when I do talk about it, always like ignites inspire in me to keep going. Because somewhere that's a family who's gonna be hurting or that's some kid who's gonna look up to me and say, I wanna do that. And, you know, I, I get to be that that image for them, you know, to wanna keep going. And it's like, I don't take what I do for granted um, because I know that it is a powerful position. I know that it is something that I can do to invoke change in this world. So I take it, you know, with the utmost respect and, and dignity, you know, to, to put out the best work, to be the voice, you know, to, to represent myself and my community, you know, in the best possible way that I can. Because people are looking. Yeah. I completely agree. I completely agree. Well, I have a few lightning questions for you, if you don't mind. Um, okay. All right. Um, what is your favorite relaxation or self-care activity? Sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I love sleep. When I can get it, I get it. And I'm talking about I sleep for a good eight hours. Oh, man. Sleep. I support that 100%. What's your best book recommendation? Ooh, I have, I, okay, I will say two. Right now, um, two book recommendations. I would say this book called Ele- Elevator Phobia, and then All Boys on Blue, which mm. is by an LGBTQ 
uh, author. Yeah. So those are two books, especially, you know, I got to plug my LGBTQ a plus community. Um, that's a really good book. I actually read it with an LGBTQ uh, book club. So yeah, cool. check it out. Will do. Will do. And one person you want to thank for your journey thus far. One person, God. <laughs> oh man, what I what I honestly and I, and I say that without him, nothing is possible. Like right. I, my journey has, like I said in the beginning, my journey has been a roller coaster. And you know this. I've lived in places that you look at me like now, gentlemen, who lives in those places? Mm-hmm. And I did it alone. And while I do have family support, nothing was possible without God. I lived in West Texas, which was seven percent black and. I was 45 minutes outside of New Mexico. I'm in Omaha, Nebraska. I lived in Mobile, Alabama. Um, so I lived in places, all these places by myself. And while, you know, my family has called and been there financially, um, spiritually, mentally, like everything has been God. Like, yeah. That's the like one person like that has, has, has kept me along the way. No, I, so, I totally agree that. Amen yeah. to that for sure. Um, well, thank you again, man. I really appreciate your time today, and I hope you have a great rest of your night. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I appreciate, you know, for coming on and having me and talking a little. So, yeah, I, you know, it's good. It's refreshing. <laughs> okay. Hopefully someone hears this and someone is motivated and find their purpose and their why, you know, and do great things in the world. I believe it will be so, sir. Yeah, thank you. been another episode of don't be coy with uncle lou as always i'd like to thank this episode's guest for a great conversation as well as thank you the listener for joining in whether you're a first-time listener or regular i always appreciate your support if you like today's episode and ever want to listen to more subscribe to our show on apple podcast audible google podcast or spotify and to join our community and access future bonus content be sure to visit dbkpodcast.com.